0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, we're going to be looking this morning verses 21 through verse 28. Matthew 15, verses 21 through verse 28. I think that all of us probably have an area of our life today where we would love to see a powerful expression of God. It might be in relationship to um, a family member. It could be a, a son or a daughter that that we know maybe is not walking with the Lord or maybe there's something occurring in their life where we would love to just see God move in their life in a powerful way. It could be a, a financial area where we're desperate for a move of God or maybe vocationally speaking, we're, we're desperate for God to move. But we probably all have an area where We'd love to just see uh, what some people call a God win, that we just need a God win in this, this area of our life. And this morning as we come to God's word, we're going to see a woman who, quite frankly, is an unlikely candidate to see God move. She's not a part of, of God's people. She's not a part of the nation of Israel. And yet at the end of this, we're going to see God move in her life in a powerful way. She's going to see an extraordinary expression of God's power in her life. And in fact, Jesus is going to say of her, you have great faith. Jesus, that's not the type of statement that Jesus just throws around loosely. And Jesus only makes these kinds of statements a few times in scripture where he's astonished by a person's faith. And in fact, we know this in scripture, nothing uh, amazed the heart of God like faith. He never looked at Matthew and said, boy, you sure are good with numbers. we got to have you on our team. Or Peter, boy, you can fish like no other. i got to have you. But what amazed him was faith. This woman, she is going to... Think about the, 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 the magnitude of this. She's going to amaze Jesus with her faith. And she's going to see a, a powerful expression of God in her life. Now, now what we have to ask ourselves is what did she do to see this kind of expression of God's power? What was it about this woman's faith that made it great? So let's pray together and then we'll work our way through this text. Father, as we come before you this morning, I I think that all of us, if we're here this morning, it's because we we want to grow our faith. We want to have great faith. We want to see and, and have the kind of faith that, that moves your heart. And so, God, I pray that by the power of your word, you would instruct us all. God, take away all our preconceived notions about what faith looks like. And teach us again this morning, afresh and anew, what it means to have a saving faith and a faith that sees your hand move in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you look with me there in verse 21, we see a bit of a retreat. It says there, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is going to leave the confines of Israel and he's going to go into a region that wasn't known for godliness. It wasn't known for holiness. These were corrupt places and and there he goes, probably to get a little bit of separation from the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership have begun at this point to hound him with questions. And if you've been in that kind of, of situation where people are just attacking you and asking you all kinds of questions, you know the need to have a little bit of separation. So I think he, he desires some separation from the Jewish leadership. I think there's also a desire on the part of Jesus just to have some isolation so that he can pour into his guys. He, he's, he's developing them and discipling within the context of life and ministry, but but if you're instructing somebody, you also need some alone time. You need some classroom time where you can sit and just instruct your guys. And so I think Jesus wants to pour into these guys. Remember, he's only about a year from the cross. This is all about training the 12. He just wants to pour into his guys a little bit of a retreat. But if you've been to Israel, you know the region of of Galilee and Israel. It's not real big. And Jesus' popularity has exploded at this point. He really can't go anywhere where he's not recognized. So even as he enters into the region of Tyre and Sidon, here he's going to have a woman who's going to be coming to him, and she's going to bring a request. So look at verse 22. And it says, And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And the first thing that we notice is that she is a, a Canaanite woman. And very simply, we can get- to talk all we want about this. Mark's gospel talks about her being uh, a Syro-Phoenician, but, but it's important for us just to simply understand that she's not part of God's chosen people. And the Canaanites were enemies of God's people. The, these people in the Old Testament, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites were the people who probably gave the nation of Israel more trouble than any other group of people. Um, their idol worship was always infecting the people of Israel. And, and these are the people that God said, stay away from them they'll give you trouble you don't want to be around these people and so uh, the Israel to some extent was enemies with the Canaanites and the Canaanites to some extent were enemies of Israel and yet here is this Canaanite woman coming to Jesus and she cries out for mercy now and remember mercy is not getting what we deserve not getting what we deserve And so at least uh, there's an implied, I think, uh, admission of guilt on her part. She's coming to Jesus and saying, I'm asking you not to treat me as I know I deserve to be treated. In other words, Jesus, I know I'm not a part of your people. I know I'm not of the the nation of Israel. I'm coming to you. I, I know I got no leg to stand on. I got no argument before you. I'm coming to you simply with a plea and a cry for mercy. She's not coming in arrogance. She's not arguing with Jesus and saying that he's got to act in her life on the basis of her merit and what she's done. She's coming simply crying out for mercy. And we see also that she comes respectfully. In this request, she refers to Jesus in two ways. She refers to him first as Lord. Uh, Now, now very simply, probably at its most basic level, this term Lord is a sign of respect. It would be much like us saying the word sir or mister or or master. Um, So most people believe that she's just being respectful. I believe, though, as she uses this word Lord, I think she's, she's, she's actually identifying Jesus as God. I believe that she's identifying Christ as sovereign and in control of the universe. And you say, why do you believe that? I believe that on the basis of the next term that she uses. Because she doesn't just say, Lord. She says, Lord, Son of David. Now, this is profound. Because Son of David is strictly a messianic term. It was a term for Jesus that signified that he was the rightful heir to the throne of David. That he was the Messiah that the nation had been looking for. So this is amazing. Here's a Canaanite woman that's not part of God's people, and yet somehow her eyes are being opened to the reality that this man, Jesus, is not just some great teacher. He's the Messiah, the rightful heir to the throne of David. he's, He's the one we've been waiting on. And it's a good reminder that coming to the knowledge that Jesus Christ is your Savior, your only means of salvation, the Savior of the world is not something that you simply think your way into. It's something that God opens our eyes to, that God reveals to us. You, you know, In in the next chapter, Matthew 16, Peter's going to make that great confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and it will be Jesus who will say to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says to Peter, You didn't come up with that on your own. I revealed it to you. So here's a Canaanite woman outside the people of God, and yet God is working in her life to the extent that, somehow, some way, she sees Jesus as the Messiah. And then she brings a request. And I think it's important that she doesn't. She's not asking on her own behalf. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to do something in your life personally. But I do think it's important to note that in this request, she's not asking Jesus to do something in her life. She's asking to do something in her daughter's life. This is not a self centered request. And what's wrong with her daughter? Her daughter is demon possessed. So she's not asking that Jesus would make her daughter a a beauty queen pageant winner. That's not what she's asking. She's not asking Jesus to make her daughter rich and wealthy. She's saying to Jesus that the enemy that stands against all that you are and that you hate is in control of my daughter. Demon activity controls our home, and I'm asking you to free our daughter from your enemy. Now, I think we'd all agree that that's a pretty good request. In fact, I would argue that's one of the most pure requests in all of God's word. You could argue that there's no more pure request apart from the prayers of Jesus. I mean, she comes humbly. She comes knowing that she got no leg to stand on. There's no reason for Jesus to even acknowledge her. She's not saying, Jesus, I deserve this. She's coming respectfully. She's acknowledging that he's Lord and that he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. She's not asking for herself, and she's asking that her daughter would be freed from Christ's enemy. I mean, could it get any better than that? And yet, look at how Jesus responds in verse 23. It says, he did not answer her a word. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, that's not what we would expect, is it? In fact, that's not the Jesus that we often preach. We would expect Jesus to say, Great request, awesome request, your daughter is healed immediately, that's it. And that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't answer a word. Now, I don't think that Jesus is ignoring her as some some commentators suggest, but certainly this is not how we expect Jesus to respond to that kind of request. And then look at the latter portion of verse 23. This is what his disciples say. His disciples came and implored him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So she's not giving up. Jesus didn't respond. She just keeps shouting. And the disciples, being the loving, compassionate men that they were, say, get rid of this crazy woman. She's driving us nuts. We don't care what you got to do, Jesus. Heal her, do whatever, but get rid of her. And then Jesus responds to the disciples. Verse 24, he's not talking to the woman at this moment. He's talking to his guys. He, but he answered and said to them, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Disciples want her gone, and Jesus says, Sorry, boys, can't help you out. If she were a Jew, I could help her. If she she's not, she's a Gentile, I wasn't sent for her. Now, I think there is an acknowledgement on the part of Jesus that, he, that Christ wasn't sent on a worldwide mission to cure everybody of their personal diseases. That's not why Christ primarily came. And we do know that in his in our incarnation, he chose to limit himself. Doesn't cease to be God. He's still God, but he limits his deity. And so he's not omnipresent while he's here on this earth. He's only in one location at one time. And we do know that he confined most of his ministry to the region of Galilee. That's where he couldn't help everybody. He confined his ministry to there. And we do know that the gospel is the Jew first. That's what the word of God says. Jesus says, well, I can't help her. She's not a Jew. Look at how she'll respond to this in verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. Now, does it get more simple or sincere than that? There's no quit in this woman. And I, I love to picture these scenarios in my mind, and I just picture this mother who's absolutely desperate. I picture tears in her eyes falling at the feet of Jesus. You know, as parents, is there any greater, could there be any greater pain than the pain of seeing a child that's not walking with the Lord? A child that's hurting. And here she is, all dignity is gone at this moment. Listen, when you're you're trying to care for your child, dignity just goes out the window. She knows at this moment, Jesus is my only hope, and she's at his feet begging and imploring him to act on her behalf. Well, surely he'll respond at this moment. But look at verse 26. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog's. And that's one of those places in God's word that I I would just like to take a black marker and just mark it through, pretend it's not there. It's amazing to me, the commentators will do all kinds of work to try to explain away these words or somehow soften it or apologize for Jesus. And they'll talk about how there's two words for dog. There's the household dog and the household pet dog and there's the street dog, the cur dog and... But listen, if I call you a dog, does it really matter if I call you a rottweiler or a poodle? I mean, let's just be honest. And, and I really do believe that if if we could have been there, we would better understand this. You, have you ever written an email or sent a text message and it wasn't received as you wanted it to be received? Because the person couldn't see the look in your eyes and they couldn't hear the inflection in your voice. And so they interpreted it maybe in a wrong way. And I think if we could have been there, I think this would make more sense to us. And I do believe, this is my personal belief, Jesus is using common vocabulary of the day. Listen, the Israelites did call the Canaanites dogs. And the Canaanites knew this. And remember this is in the context of Jesus helping them better understand who's clean and who's not clean. We're going to in fact next week you know we're going to see we're going to see Jesus feed 4000. And you say, what's the difference? I thought we just fed 5,000. Well, the difference is it's not going to be the ministry that he performs. It's going to be who he performs it for. Over here, we did it for Jews. Over here, we're going to do it for Gentiles. And so Jesus is in a context of sharing with the disciples what's unclean and what's clean about these people, these Gentiles that I came to save. And so I believe Jesus is looking at the disciples in this moment. And here's this woman and saying, guys, it wouldn't be right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, would it? making them hear to to some extent the absurdity of their own thoughts and that's about as good as i can do with it but at the end of the day when we get down to the brass tacks of the issue when all those explanations you can just push them to the side because we would all agree no matter how you try to explain it away does it make it any easier for that woman to hear these words ah oh, no no matter what you do to it I think it was still difficult for this woman to hear that. But look at how she responds. This is unbelievable. Look at verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. This is absolutely amazing. This is one resilient, clever woman. If you're a sales manager, you're looking to hire this lady. She says, I may be just a sinful Gentile dog, but I know that sometimes even the dogs get scraps from the master's table. And Jesus, I know I don't deserve this, I know I'm wretched. but I just so happen to believe that you're a God of mercy and a God of grace. And so regardless of what I feel in this moment, I'm just not going to let go of you. I'm trusting that a God of grace that you are would somehow reach down and touch even a filthy, wretched dog like me. And then look at the result in verse 28. And then Jesus said to her, "Oh woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed. I just picture Jesus getting on his knees. I picture her response bringing a smile to Jesus' face and probably tears to his eyes. And he grabs her up in his arms. And he says to her, your faith is great. Your daughter is healed. It should be done for you as you ask. This woman sees a huge expression of God's power in her life. Can you imagine the moment some of you know, I mean, you, you, maybe you've prayed for this day with your children, that moment where, where, where you come home and for the first time you embrace a child that's freed from the power of sin and Satan in their life and just to see the joy and peace. I can only imagine the, the, the excitement and the tears that must have filled that room. This woman sees a huge expression of God's power in her life. Why? Because what she believed about Jesus so overwhelmed what she saw and what she heard that she was not going to let go of Jesus until she heard those words, your faith is great, your daughter is healed. Now, where in the world did she get this kind of faith? I have no idea. Maybe she heard about in the Old Testament certain Gentiles like, like Naaman the Syrian who who was outside the people of God and yet he came where? He came to Elijah, the prophet of God, because he was seeking help. He was in a desperate situation. He was a leper. And although he's a great commander of the army, he was about to die, and so he goes to God knowing he's the only hope. And there he dips seven times in Jordan. He humbles himself, and God heals him. Maybe she had heard about that story. Maybe she had heard about Rahab the harlot. Maybe she had heard about Ruth the Moabitess. Maybe she had heard about the Roman centurion earlier in Jesus' ministry. I don't know. But something in this woman knew that God is a God of mercy and grace. And he's my only hope. And I'm just not going to let go of him until I see a powerful expression of his power in my life. She was believing in the character of God. That sometimes he even reaches down and touches sinners like us. Now, I, I think this story is bigger than just this woman and her daughter. I believe that Jesus is instructing his guys, his disciples, and instructing us on what it means to have great faith. First of all, I think that Jesus is teaching us that this is, this is saving faith. A saving faith is an acknowledgement that you don't have a leg to stand on before God, that you're a sinner, that you're guilty, that you got no argument for God. When you come to Christ for salvation, you don't come with your merit list of all the things that you've done. No, you come with a simple cry for mercy. And when you understand your predicament, when you understand that you're an object of wrath, When you begin to understand the depth of your own sinfulness and what you rightly deserve, and you begin to understand who Jesus is and what he did for you, in that moment when you come to Christ, you're probably coming much in the same that this way that this woman did. That Jesus will become not, he will not become to you somebody that you'll just take or leave. Well, yeah, I guess I'll take a little Jesus. No, when you understand who you are and who Jesus is and what he did, you will be begging and pleading that a God of grace would reach down and save a sinner like you. Your response will probably be much like the thief on the cross. You remember the thief on the cross? Not much you can do to earn salvation when you got nails in your hands. And in that moment, you don't start bringing your Sunday school attendance records. You don't do that. But that guy, that thief on that cross, you remember, he starts to recognize we're getting what we justly deserve. But this man, he's done what? He's done nothing wrong. And he recognizes that Jesus is a king. And do you remember what he asked? Did he ask for a mansion in heaven? Did he ask for a big old place? Saying, Jesus, on the basis of who I am, I'd really like a three-story house. No. What did he ask? Would you just remember me? Jesus, I don't deserve nothing. I'm filthy and messed up. But I know you're king. And I'm just trusting that I can get to sit at the back of the room. When you know who you are and you know who God is and what Christ is, your attitude will be like this woman that I may be a filthy, wretched sinner. But I'm trusting in the character of God that he'll even save a sinner like me. This is saving faith, but not only is this saving faith, this is the kind of faith that sees the hand of God move in our lives. Here's a question for you, if if this woman comes to Jesus and Jesus doesn't answer her a word and she responds and says, well, if that's how Jesus acts, then I'm out of here and she gets offended and she leaves, is her daughter healed? Probably not. If when she comes to Jesus, she overhears the disciples saying, get that crazy woman out of here, and she says, you know what? If that's how his guys act, bunch of hypocrites, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, and she leaves, is her daughter healed? Probably not. If when she comes to Jesus and Jesus refers to her as a dog and she gets offended and says, if that's how he acts towards me, I'm done with him and I'm out of here, is her daughter healed? Probably not. The only way that she sees this huge expression of God's power in her life is if she clings to Jesus as her only hope until the very end. Now here's the question. What is it that makes this woman keep clinging to Jesus? Because I gotta be honest with you, I'm probably not making it to the end. I don't know that I go that far. What is it about this woman Well, we know she's got a need in her life. Her daughter is hurting, so she's desperate. And she's come to the realization that Jesus is her only hope, so she's persistent. She knows, as parents, we'll do anything to help our children. She's probably been to the doctors. They couldn't help her. Been and tried medicine. That couldn't help. Probably went to the idols. Those things couldn't help. But she believes that Jesus can help her. So no matter what she sees, no matter what she hears, no matter how painful it might become, no matter how it might seem that God is even acting contrary to her desires, she's just going to keep clinging to Jesus with all her might, trusting that he'll move, that he's gracious. He'll move in her life. And Jesus says, that's great faith. That's the kind of faith that moves the heart of God. It struck me that our, our idea of faith is so wimpy. It's so churchified. I mean, what, when we pray, oftentimes, what do we do? Well, Jesus, I bring these requests to you today. If it be your will, just do whatever you want to do, and I'll take whatever you give, and be fine. We'll move on. Don't even think another thing about it. Can I just ask you, where would you see that, that kind of faith? exalted in the word of God no but but when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray you remember in Luke 11 he gives them the model prayer and then after that he says I'm going to give you an illustration of how this is supposed to work and you remember what he says he says suppose you got a friend who comes over to the house in the middle of the night and they start banging on the door asking for a loaf of bread you're probably not getting up because you don't want to get out of bed but if that person just keeps on knocking and keeps on knocking and keeps on knocking, eventually you'll get up and give them whatever they want just to get rid of them. And then do you remember what Jesus says? He says, ask and you shall receive. And it's in the present tense meaning keep on asking and then you receive. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened unto you. He's saying that kind of desperate, persistent faith and prayer life is the kind of faith that moves the heart of God. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of Jacob you remember Jacob? He comes out of the womb, he's grasping after his brother's heel, and that grasping would characterize most of his life. He was always grasping after blessing, always trying to manipulate circumstances, always trying to deceive people out of the blessing. And in fact, his name means deceiver. It was his brother, Esau, who said, "You're rightly named Jacob, deceiver, because you've deceived me these two times." He deceived his brother, Esau out of the birthright. He deceived his father out of the blessing. He even tries to deceive his uncle Laban. (laughs) Laban's a bit of a deceiver himself. And he gets himself into all kinds of messes. But eventually he comes to a place in his life where he knows he's got to go home. No other place to turn. No other place to go. But what does he know? He's got a brother there who doesn't like him. And his brother is going to kill him. And he knows this is it. But he's got nowhere else to go. So he's got to go. His back's in the, against the wall. He's in a desperate place. And in Genesis 31 and 32 at the Fort of the Jabbok, he gets down and he prays. And I mean, Jacob prays. You know, we, we, I think we all know that there's some times in our life when we pray, but there's other times in our life when we, when we pray. You know what I'm talking about? I think at this moment, Jacob prays like no other time in his life because he knows God's his only hope and in that moment it's a crazy story you got to go read it God attacks him and Jacob wrestles with God and he puts up a pretty good fight until God's had enough that's the way you can be when you're God you can just say this is fun for a little while and now we're done you ever do that with your boys wrestle with them a little bit okay now we're done my boys are starting to get to the point where that's more, becoming more difficult to do. But, but God says, this is it. And God just takes his finger and touches him on the thigh of his sop- socket and dislocates his hip. Now You talk about pain. It's said that the most painful thing that a person can experience is a dislocated hip. This guy is in pain. It feels as though God is attacking him at that moment. And yet, what is his reaction? What does he do? He keeps clinging to God. In fact, God says to him, Jacob, let go of me. And you remember what Jacob says? I will not let you go till you bless me. That it may feel like you're against me in this moment, and it might be painful, but at the end of the day, I know you're all I got. And my deceitful ways, they can't help me now. And all my wisdom and my cunning craftiness, they can't help me now. So I'm going to cling to you, believing you're my only hope. You remember in that moment, God says to Jacob, he says to him, what's your name? Did God know Jacob's name? I think he did. Why did he ask him his name? What was Jacob's name? It was deceiver. I think God wanted him to hear him say it. I'm a deceiver. An admission of guilt. What's your name? What are you? I'm a sinner. I'm a deceiver. But I haven't deceived you. And God says, all right, now, now, now I can use you. And he changes his name from deceiver and he changes him to Israel and says, now you're going to become the father of a great nation. Why? Because you're great? No. But because you wouldn't let go of me. Folks, that's the kind of desperate, persistent faith that sees the hand of God move in our life, that I'm not letting go of God that it may feel like he's against me and it may be painful and I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to continue clinging to him because I trust his character and I know he's my only hope and I'm not going to let go of him until he blesses me. Can I just ask you this morning, when was the last time that you were that desperate for God in prayer to do anything in your life? When was the last time that you were in a situation that you knew was bigger than you? When was the last time your back was against the wall and you knew that, God, if you don't move in this moment, I'm sunk, where you had run out of yourself and knew in that moment, God, you're my only hope, and I, regardless of how it feels, And regardless of whether or not I see you move right now, I'm just going to keep clinging and I will not give up on you. Trusting that you have ways and I trust your character. You know, the story goes, I was thinking this week, this is bonus material for those of you that stuck around for the 11 o'clock. The little boy that uh, went to the grocery store with his mama went down an aisle and said, Mom, I want some chocolate chip cookies. Mama said, we ain't getting no chocolate chip cookies today. That little boy wasn't going to give up. Go down the next aisle. I want some chocolate chip cookies. You're not getting any chocolate chip cookies today. Go down another aisle. Mom, I want some chocolate chip No chocolate chip Boy, if you ask one more time, you're going to get it. Finally, they got to the checkout line. They're in this long line waiting to check out. Boy gets on his knees in the basket. Puts his hand together and says, Jesus, my mama won't buy me no chocolate chip cookies. But I'm trusting in you that you have ways. The woman behind her, his mother in line said, why won't that woman buy that boy some chocolate chip cookies? Mama went over, grabbed some chocolate chip cookies, threw them in the basket. Little boy stood back up, put his hands together and said, thank you, Jesus. All laughter side. Can I tell you, some of you are in the checkout line or it feels like the checkout line of life. And some of you are thinking about throwing it in the t- and giving up. Don't give up. We believe in a God who has ways, amen, that we know not of. We're trusting in his character. Trusting that he's a God of mercy. And we're not going to give up on him. Far too often I think we miss out on a powerful expression of God's power in our life. Not because God's not able, but because we're not that desperate. We think we can do it on our own. Listen, the places around the world that are seeing the uh, powerful expression of God in their life are places where the people of God have nothing and are being persecuted the worst. Why are they seeing a powerful expression of God? Not because they have access to something that we don't, but because they're seeking it more. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have a time of prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Prayer. And some of you need to pray this morning. So Pastor Bill's going to come and we're just going to pray. Some of you, it's prayer for a child. You're watching online. You may not be here with us, and you may and you want to come to this altar, just kneel. You want to kneel right where you're at, and there's nothing that makes our, uh, if it, that our physical posture doesn't make our prayers more spiritual, but sometimes it's fitting to demonstrate to God in our physical posture how our heart feels, and so some of you may just want to get on your knees. You want to kneel here at the altar. Some of you have a child right now. I know because I've talked with many of you and I've prayed with you and I've seen you cry over children that you know are lost or not where they should be. And it feels as though they're controlled by Satan. Listen, we have a God who is able. Would we seek him? Some of you, it's a relational aspect. It's a a spouse that doesn't know the Lord. It's a parent that doesn't know the Lord. Some of you, it's a vocational situation. And you're saying, I want to see God move. Can I ask you, are you seeking him in prayer? And if nothing else, as a nation, are we seeking God in prayer? Have you read the headlines? Are we a nation that needs a powerful move of God today? I don't know about you, but I'm tired of complaining, and I can complain with the best of them. But as best I can tell, I'm supposed to do nothing, everything without grumbling and complaining. And I don't know that my grumbling or complaining ever, ever changed anything. But I'll tell you this, prayer changes things. We want to see God move in our nation. When was the last time you got on your knees and you prayed for our country and prayed for our president and prayed for our nation as we're commanded to do in God's word? You know what we're going to do this morning? We're going to give you an opportunity right now. Wherever you're seated, if you want to get out just in the aisle, you want to come here to the front right now, just wherever you're at, we're just going to pray. You come, you respond. This is your time. Just giving you an opportunity right now to seek the heart of God. Let's just pray together to people. God, if you're watching online, you may want to hit your knees right now, wherever you are, just bow your head. Whatever you feel comfortable doing, let's just seek the heart of God. Next four or five minutes, we're just going to pray. Would you join me in prayer this morning?